Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Conrad DePoitras-Jowell, RDQ Economics Senior Economist and Founding Partner. Good morning to you, Conrad. Good morning. Let's just talk about whether these central banks are being preemptive or reactive. And I want to pick up on the New Zealand Central Bank this morning because I was going through the statement after seeing this 50 basis point cut. And you can file this under things you don't expect to read after a central bank just cut rates by 50 basis points. Employment is around its maximum sustainable level. Inflation remains within our target range, but below the 2% midpoint. Recent data recording improved employment and wage growth is welcome. You don't expect to read things like that after a central bank just cut rates 50 basis points when they only had 150 basis points to play with to begin with, Conrad. What is going on? Well, I mean, I I think what that shows is that these uh, strange communications that are going along policy easings, the U.S. doesn't have a a monopoly on that. And we've had... uh, Yesterday, we heard from from uh, St. Louis Fed President Bullard, who said that the Fed can't react to every trade uh, dispute or every trade risk. Um, but that's exactly what they said that they did last week. So I, I think markets are, are, are looking at, at all of this and saying, what is driving monetary policy, not just in the U.S., but 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 everywhere? Um, and and there's there might be some areas around the world where you could make a case for easier policy. Europe might be one of those areas. We have inflation that's very low in Europe. Um, we have growth that's lower and weaker than what the what the European Central Bank was projecting just a couple of months ago. Um, but here we have data that's strong. You, you, you pointed out what's, what's going on in, in New Zealand, where we have um, strong labor markets. We have inflation that's closer to target in these areas than it is in, in Europe. Um, and central banks are cutting rates because they're trying to offset some some policy risk. Um, and then the other point that you made, there's not a lot of a lot of the Fed has more room than other central banks. But um, the question is, why are they using ammunition now? Is it a waste of ammunition? And I think what's going on in markets is it, we talked about the yield curve and the rallies in the long end is that markets are looking forward to what comes next. Once these banks, it, it, once the central banks use up the ammunition as limited as it is that they have, what did they do next? And they, what they do next is QE. And I think that's what's driving down long-term yields. Well, let's talk about what's right in front of our face right now. It's what the Federal Reserve does in the here and now. There was a belief over the last few months that they would move to a more preemptive stance, perhaps move early. We've heard the arguments from several officials, do more with less. That was what led to many people thinking perhaps we get a 50 basis point cut, didn't get one. Then the conversation shifted last week. Here we have a central bank that has no choice but to underwrite the trade war. And then Jim Bullard happened yesterday, the president of the St. Louis Fed, and he sounded really reluctant to get drawn into that. What do you think about that stance, Conrad, and how risky it could be if the Federal Reserve decides that actually it's not its place to underwrite the trade war? Um, I, I think that's hugely problematic. I mean, particularly if the if the data continue on the, the path that we've seen. I mean, there, I think, don't think there's anyone that can deny that um, that risks have gone up with the ratcheting up in the trade war. Um, the the likelihood that businesses might be more reticent on investing and potentially hiring than they were previously if this trade war continues to uh, to escalate um, those risks have gone up but what do we know so far we we know that businesses uh, on the hiring front we still have have pretty solid levels of business demand the JOLTS report that came out yesterday albeit for June um, but the more up-to-date uh, data that we've had from the NFIB we have very high levels of job openings so businesses aren't pulling back on hiring 
Um, the consumer seems to be in great shape. Inflation is not that far off. I mean, you remember back at the May meeting when the Fed made a big deal Powell in his press conference in the minutes of yeah. that meeting about trimmed mean inflation. Exactly. They exactly. revised it on Friday. It's 2%. So inflation is close to target. The, the labor market's doing fine. We do have con some concerns on the business front with business investment. Um, but it just seems to me that the, the, the argument well, for preemption is, is, uh, is, is too early. OBE, overcome by events. I'm looking at the data screen that tells me Chairman Powell's going to be overcome by events. Where, where in your mind, just using as one benchmark, the 10-year, 2.1, excuse me, 1.64%. Where does Jerome Powell become overcome by market events? Well, I hope what the Fed does is realize that, that their role in driving these moves. I think it's problematic for markets to move based on the expectation for Fed action, whether or not that, that whether or not that's justified. And then for the Fed to look at the markets and say, well, the markets are telling us that the economy's weak. So but that's not necessarily Well to your markets. inflation point, are you saying the service sector inflation will not diminish down to what goods inflation is, is a lot of people are 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 are, are forecasting. I don't think so. And I and I, It'll I stay also think that I also think that what, what if we're talking about the good side um, firstly, on the, the producer price front, those prices are rising much more rapidly on consumers. So there's a potential for some feed through there. And the tariffs have an impact on goods prices. Not yet, but eventually they will. If, if we do get this additional 10% tariff on $200 billion of imports from China, that will have an impact, more of an impact than I think the first round of tariffs had. Um, and so goods prices will, will be pressured higher. But the, the, the point is, the, the inflation environment, even with goods price inflation relatively subdued, um, it is being driven by the services side. Uh, inflation is running pretty close to 2% on, on many measures of, of kind of underlying prices. So, um, you know, I, I think based on the data, it's really hard to make, to make the argument. I think what's happening with the Fed is that the markets are anticipating them cutting rates. Um, the markets on, on the risk asset side, the, the risky assets are, are, um, are skittish. And the Fed just doesn't feel like it's in a position to disappoint markets in this kind of environment. Mm -hmm. Hey, Conrad, great to catch up with you. Conrad de Quadros dropping by the studio to get us up to speed on what's happening worldwide. RDQ Economics Senior Economist and Founding Partner. Let's bring in David Pearl, shall we? Epic Investment Partners, Co-Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager. Can we begin in Europe, David? Well, we've just heard from a series of banks through the morning. Commerce Bank, the goal of lifting profit, increasingly ambitious. Unicredit, slashing its full-year revenue target by a billion. ABN AMRO, adding to all of this, saying its margins might be hit. These guys are struggling with low rates. Will any of this get any better anytime soon? Probably not, unfortunately. But David, really the mic's matters, over here. Pull up on the mic. Here. Right. Is this here your first go. time on radio? Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, what really matters, though, is economic growth because it, banks are economically sensitive. This is this really matters. You have to have growth. Monetary policy, for all it was trying to do, has run out of gas, and yeah. European companies are just not borrowing. There is no economic growth, and it's not just a matter of rates. You need to have more loan volume, and they're not getting Then, John Farrell, why did yeah. we hear that from the CFO of Commerce Bank this morning? That, like, it's like no big deal. But Tom, like, this, is, this really? is the problem with the business strategy for the European lenders at the moment. They refocus the business models, and guess how they refocus them? 
yeah. domestically. And what's <laughs> happening domestically in Europe right now? Nothing. It's really, really not good. Yeah. And what also strikes me, and it's absolutely stunning, Matt Miller, our colleague, caught up with the Commerce Bank CFO a little bit earlier today. And the complacency coming from German politicians and even corporate leaders is absolutely stunning. The best case at the moment is the economy is stagnating. <clears throat> the worst case is we're already in recession in a place like Germany. Right. And yet when you speak to these individuals, you hear things like we are in good shape. I mean, for Germany, they, they really have an export economy. They've already been hit by China. Uh, to refocus domestically is kind of pointless because the domestic economy just isn't growing. Do, do you suggest that the international banks that you know so well, David Pearl, in the United States could really take advantage of that? Do they, is there a desire there to expand abroad and take market share? Uh, they they are taking advantage in capital markets, but they're not going to expand right. through Europe. That's not where the growth is. So Asia is really the focus, and well, Latin America. With the limited time we have with you, banks lagged last year. Yeah. They're all trading at like a yeah. nine multiple right. book, you know, yeah. da-da-da. How cheap is it once in a lifetime on the U.S. Yeah. banks? So, so banks on average had double-digit growth in profits and dividends. If you add them up, you're in double digits plus share buyback. The reason they underperformed last year is their multiples compressed. So we had a market that went from like 15 times in the Q4 last year to 18, and banks went from 14 to 10 on a multiple basis. So basically... The consensus view is that banks can't continue to earn money. We're going into recession. Credit quality is going to deteriorate. And by the way, the number one metric for a bank is credit quality. So when we look at banks today, they're a true bargain. Credit is fantastic because consumer credit is strong. Job growth is good. Wages have been okay. There has been no deterioration. So they are basically having record earnings and returning 100% of profit to shareholders. You can get a double-digit return even if the multiple stays at 10 times earnings in a yeah. market at 18. But there's a massive spread between what they're delivering and how they're performing in the stock market. So right. we need to talk about why yeah. they're performing this way in the stock market. I caught up with Credit Suisse this week and said, counterintuitively, this is the sector that is at most risk from the trade war. Why? Because every time it bubbles up, rates drop aggressively. And what gets beaten up on that day, it's banks. And as you point out, David, what they've done so well over the last decade has changed the business model, fee-based, right. recurring revenue, away from just spread lending. Right. The business model has changed, but the investor bias hasn't shifted. And I'm just trying to work out whether it does and when it will. Right, right. I mean, the knee-jerk reaction is when the yield curve flattens, you sell the banks. It turns out they're not that sensitive to the yield curve anymore. Most of the loans are variable. The fee-based business is becoming bigger. So for them, the profits have continued. Um, I hate to say this, but probably the um, turning point would be a recession, where banks do better in a recession than other economically sensitive areas. And they would, given what has happened to them right so, now. So David, that makes the argument of buying the financials really difficult for investors. Why do I want to own a sector until we go into a recession. Okay, so the reason right now is that bank yields are superior in a market where yields are going down, and the alternatives are really expensive. So owning consumer staples, telecoms, or utilities, you're paying 25 times earnings for companies with almost no growth, uh, and here you are with banks with a 3 or 4% dividend. Oh. So it's very attractive. Please come back. Come back when yields go up, you know. It was good fun, David. Thanks for dropping by, David. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that as well. Just really, really appreciate it. 
Listen, I'll bring in the next guest. We are steamed to give you, without question, the historical perspective of China and the United States. You can only do that with Fred Bergston, the founder of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and he is definitive on diplomacy and expecting the unexpected as we speak to China. Fred, we are thrilled to have you on today. What does President Trump not know with all your decades of experience of international economics in China? What's the unexpected for President Trump? He overestimates his own ability to get the Chinese to capitulate to his demands He fails to recognize the need to mobilize America's allies to work with him in the confrontation with China, and therefore he risks triggering a really major and continuing trade and now currency war that could really tank both our own economy and the world economy. We see Fred Bergston this morning yields ever lower. We see central banks on an ad hoc basis slashing interest rates as well. Citigroup Asia published a short note on United States intervention in the currency markets. Are we at the point where we get less coordinated intervention by the Bank of Japan to weaken the yen or by U.S. Treasury to adjust the dialogue? There's a risk of that. Uh, when the United States designates China as a currency manipulator, as it did two days ago, when there is no evidence that China is manipulating, it risks the whole fabric of monetary cooperation that has been so important for the last 30 or 40 years. There are agreements in the G20 and the G7 and bilaterally between the United States and other key allies, the Japanese, the Europeans, and others, uh, to coordinate and consult closely before operating in the currency markets. When the U.S. designates China a manipulator with no evidence, and in fact, when China has been operating on the other side of the market, it just causes our allies in treasuries and central banks around the world to shake their heads, ask what the Americans are doing, obviously know that it's President Trump forcing his Secretary of the Treasury to make a designation that has no basis in fact, and therefore undermines any prospect for really cooperative and effective behavior in the currency markets or more broadly. So, Fred, the big worry, of course, and the ultimate irony of all of this is that actually what the administration would quite like is for the Chinese to manipulate the currency, just to continue manipulating the currency stronger, which is what they've been doing for the last year or so, Fred. I think a question for a lot of our listeners is whether the Chinese, by allowing it to weaken on Monday, sent a signal to the administration that they may well be prepared to use the currency, to weaponize the currency. Fred, what are your thoughts on that? I think one has to really nuance that carefully. Well, please do. Yeah, I think the Chinese have been quite careful not to manipulate in the sense of driving their currency down. They know that would be objectionable and would justifiably trigger a counter-response. However, they have undone their manipulation, which you point out has been in our favor. They have been intervening to keep their currency from weakening. That's been very much to our advantage. They have now undone that, at least to some extent, let the market forces that are driving their currency down prevail, at least to some extent, and yes, 
re- use that to respond to Trump's trade threats and trade actions. Uh, but one has to distinguish between that permitting market forces to drive their currency down a bit. That's very different from their taking overt action, intervening to drive it down. As you say, they've been manipulating, to use the term in a, in a, in a colloquial sense, yeah. in our direction. Uh, and Trump is actually asking them to manipulate more to keep their currency from weakening. Rather ironic, you might say. But they can counter and do so in a justifiable way by simply letting the market forces, which are certainly pushing the renminbi in a weakening direction, to prevail at least to some extent. So, Fred, we have to understand, though, whether the end result is the same. So they move away from constraining the currency. They don't move towards actively weakening the currency. By moving from constraining to tolerating a weaker currency, that still sends a signal. And I'm just wondering whether they continue to send that signal in the coming weeks or whether that strategy is too big a double-edged sword for the Chinese to really lean on. Well, I think they may continue that, but only to a limited extent for the reason you imply. The Chinese are horrified by the thought of a free fall or a sharp plunge in the exchange rate of their currency. Uh, They experienced that in 2015. It had very negative and worrisome effects on their own economy. It triggered some capital flight out of China. They want to avoid that at all costs. So to whatever extent they may weaponize, as you say, the exchange rate by letting it weaken to offset Trump's tariffs, I think they would do so only to a very limited extent. And though it would compensate to some extent for Trump's tariffs, I don't think we should fear that it will have a massive effect in improving their competitive position. Fred Burstyn, one final question. Madeleine Lagarde has had a tenure on the watch at the IMF. She wanders off to Frankfurt for, you know, a a crisis-free era at the ECB. Who's the right person to take over the IMF? Is it time to look someplace other than Europe? I think it is time to look around the world to get the best person to run the IMF could be an American. It could be an Asian. Uh, there are several very plausible Asian candidates. Uh, I think the time to end, yeah. time has come to end this monopoly yeah. in which the U.S. runs the World Bank and the Europeans run the IMF. That yeah. is an anachronism, and it should be uh, should yeah. be discarded. Is Adam Posen on your short list to run the IMF? I think he'd be great. <laughs> Very good, Fred Burston. We'll leave hey, it thanks, there. Fred. Thank you so much, Fred Burston. He is a founder of the Institute for International Economics, the Peterson Institute for International Economics. math wednesday we can do that with john norman of jp morgan who's been very kind to stay around with us given the market sell-off we see price up yield down in bonds i don't want to get into the greek letters john norman because it's summer but um, i i would suggest the systemic risk the epsilon that is out there is substantial what do you see at the end of all these equations what do you see in terms of the built-in risks of the system I think the risks are, are pretty substantial because you have what um, is transpiring in the manufacturing sector, which is kind of a near recession. 
And if there's a near recession in one sector, you really have to worry about contamination to mm-hmm. other sectors that are more resilient, like services and labor. So this is basically the thin end of the wedge. I guess the risk is it just kind of widens out as tariffs go up and, and the months pass. And, and if that's the, the scenario, you, you have to think markets need a, a yeah. bit more cheapness to accommodate that. And, and that, to me, is kind of the, the big disconnect is markets just don't acknowledge that um, right. manufacturing, which is pretty worrisome, spreads out. Are we correlated or is the idiosyncratic tone of a year still in place? I'd say the correlations are about as you would expect when recession risks are rising, meaning anything that's considered cyclical, whether it's credit, um, equities, the emerging market complex is is going down and, and bond markets are rallying and defensive currencies like yen and Swiss and, and defensive commodities like gold are, are rallying. I think I think the only correlation that's kind of broken down is what's going on in EM local rates. You know, EM local rates are behaving like developed market rates. They're rallying as stress increases. And that's something that's, you know, kind of unusual to, to see that part of the EM complex pretty firm, even as global growth is moving down. So, John, let's talk about that. Why that's happening. I, I understood the argument as people were anticipating a weaker dollar. They're not getting one. So what are they looking for in local rates over an EM? Well, what they're assuming is that because rates are going down in the DMs, that the, the, all the EMs can ease as well. And, and that's typically not how it plays out. There's some EMs that can ease because they have current account surpluses and therefore they're not subject to uh, sudden shocks from big capital outflows when, when stress is rising. But um, I would say that doesn't characterize all of EM right now. You know, that's, that's a way to talk about Asia. That's why Asia can cut rates. That's the way you can talk about maybe some EMs like Russia that have current account surpluses, but it's just not the case that, that countries like Turkey and South Africa can be cutting substantially when they're running deficits and there are a lot of concerns around uh, global growth. So I think you know that's probably a place where you can see a bit more um, uh, recorrelation opening up where, where maybe the, the EM bond markets uh, are not going to rally as consistently with uh, DM bond markets and, and, and maybe those EM bond yields should start to go up a bit as, as global stock markets go down. And John, maybe we start to see some differentiation in global fixed income. Interestingly, in Europe, we're seeing a similar phenomenon take place. Italy, which has behaved like a DMEM credit rates hybrid, is actually behaving more like a developed market as well. Yields are in seven basis points on a 10-year maturity today, down 10 basis points on a 30-year, even against the backdrop that is decidedly risk-off. So if your idea in EM right now is local rates need to back up and we need to see some differentiation again between EM and developed markets, where does Italy fit into all of that? I think you can look at it as a... a, a, a quasi-EM type product in the sense that what it embeds is duration risk and credit risk. And, and there is more credit risk in uh, Italian bonds relative to, to other DM bonds simply because of the fiscal position and the recession yeah. uh, that the country is in. So I, I agree with you. I, I think it is, we are maybe setting up for a bit of a turning point where, where Italian bonds just don't keep pace with, um, with, with bonds. And maybe there's even directional decorrelation where the bond yield goes down and, and the BTP yield goes up. How should American listeners, and particularly American Wall Street listeners, interpret the decline of an ever greater negative yields in Germany? I think they should see that as a combination of fear and scarcity. The fear is just that Europe is moving from subtrend growth into this recession that it won't be able to extract itself from. And the scarcity argument is that 
the ECB owns one third of the German bond market. So right. um, investors who were fearful just can't find a paper to, to buy. Or, How, or rather, as they, as they buy it, the rates just go ever more negative. Are you and Jan Louis still, Jan Louis, are you still on speaking terms after his <laughs> shaking, terms, shaking his earth-shaking paper of 10 days ago? Not a forecast. Trouble oh, well, I know James Diamond called department. me last what night and said, doing? be sure to ask John about this. Jamie was concerned. I mean, Louis comes out not with a forecast, folks, but with a model of how we get a vector down to a 0% tenure. How did you digest that, Mr. Norman? So the idea behind that is with, with yields cratering around the world, there's um, a, a drive for anything with a positive interest rate, and that's one of the mechanisms by which U.S. rates could go down to, to 1% even mm-hmm. lower in the, the 10-year. I think where the analogy breaks down a little bit is thinking about that rally in, in U.S. rates as a Japanization effect, because a, a Japanization effect to me is about rates that go down to zero because the country is in deflation and it also fails to generate GDP growth. And I don't think the U.S. is okay. even close to that. So I would kind of distinguish between you know what happens right. in the bond market, which can look incredibly Japanese because investors are scared and there's a lack of yeah, effort, yeah. and what's happening in the okay. economy, which could actually be better. Brilliant defense. John Norman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your time this morning. Uh, head of all of uh, our cross-asset analysis at J.P. Morgan. Helping us kind of navigate what we can expect uh, with all things equity. Welcome our good friend, Gina Martin-Adams. She is the chief equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Gina, thanks so much for making the long walk up uh, to our studio. She has an entourage. (laughs) Exactly. So give us a sense of kind of how you're framing the volatility we've seen in the equity markets just this week. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, you know, reflective of a market that certainly is weakening very substantially on a technical basis. And just to put things in perspective, the 3% decline on Monday, 3% declines are very, very rare in the broader equity market on a a single day basis. And they usually only occur in the midst of corrections that exceed 10%. So we put it out a note on Tuesday morning saying, look, it's it's highly unlikely that we're going to shake this off. Uh, there have only been two instances, indeed, in which a 3% correction was not in the midst of a 10% uh, or greater correction since 2009. So 96% yep. of the time, it means you're in for a wild ride. Uh, we think we're still in for a wild ride. What's really interesting today is initially overseas, the interpretation of these moves by global central banks was pretty positive. And then as soon as the traders came into the U.S. this morning, it all sort of the floor fell out from from under the market. And I think that's reflective of the current sentiment, which is no matter what monetary policymakers do, we're more concerned about earnings right now. And until there is some form of uh, cooperative resolution with respect to trade, even if it's a baby step forward, the market is going to remain very, very volatile. Right. So it's trade is trade. It's trade. And it's uh, I think as we get through pretty much this quarter's earnings, what did you hear from a lot of the companies as it relates to how are the trade uncertainties impacting their businesses? Is there any themes you guys have picked up? Yeah. So there's there are a lot of themes. I mean, I would say that the biggest theme is that it's just more about China growth as opposed to tariffs so far. And I think that that's largely because. Uh, you know, the, the tariffs on the products that are getting imported from China are on companies that are generally pretty flexible. They imported a lot before the tariffs were put in place. 
Um, there's a lot of supply chain angst in the tech sector with respect to China. But most of this is really more about slowing global growth than it is specifically about tariffs. So it's more about the byproduct or the yeah. snowball effect of tariffs well, on global growth, which is suppressing economic activity. Gina Martin-Adams, I know you know, you don't speak to Carl Riccadonna, which is probably a good Never. policy, but how do, you, how do you fold anyone's economic forecast into equity analysis now? Do you just take it right to a interpolation of what the revenue lines are going to be? What do you do with yeah. economic forecasts right now? Well, as you know, Tom, I was uh, an economist before I became a strategist, and I, I spent a good this. five did years we in know, reform John school. Tucker, did we, yeah, did we I, know I, this? <laughs> I I we, we were trying to keep it quiet. Is this a resume <laughs> that we need to review? I, I, I will say it's an incredible challenge because I had to spend a good five years trying to figure out you know, what really is relevant from the economic data for markets. And it, it truly is a subset of indicators that actually matter for stocks. And what matters are things like uh, initial claims, uh, the unemployment rate, interest rates, and absolutely order flow. And this, the orders are the weakest component of the economic outlook right now, and that is definitely weighing on earnings expectations for companies. But they're not one and the same. Stocks are not representative of the economy all the time, um, and the economy is not always representative of stocks. And is it your sense that the Federal Reserve, uh, does the Federal Reserve have enough arrows in the quiver to kind of help the equity markets in a meaningful way going forward? Yeah, I, so, so I do think so. I don't think you need to dismiss the Fed, say. Certainly what happens when liquidity increases, when the Fed moves to an easier stance, is you naturally have higher valuation multiples that result. The problem is that there is that offset. The Fed can only do so much because, yes, you have to rely on the transmission mechanism of monetary policy to actually effectively create some sort of uh, better economic growth outlook, and many have argued that that, is, that policy is broken. But the other side of this is, no matter what you think about the broader economy, when liquidity is ample, it's going to inflate asset price valuations. So the offset is, yes, valuations may expand, but that valuation expansion can only do so much in the face of deteriorating earnings on the other side of the price equation. So I think the Fed can do some. Can they manufacture economic growth out of nowhere? No. Um, but they can help to soothe the pain of what is becoming a, a pretty negative outlook or yeah. at least a stagnant outlook for earnings growth. Gina, thank you for the updates the last number of days. Our team has been extraordinary. How many people do you have down in the salt mine? Oh, in equity, it's like 40, <laughs> on the equity 50? strategy team, we have 12. All ex-economists, right? Broad, yeah. yeah, no, not all ex-economists, <laughs> thank God. Not all not all carrying my sins. But on the broad BI team, yeah. there's 300 now. Yeah, Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. It's been hugely valuable to us to call upon uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.